0: Welcome back to the Religionless Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Jeff Turner. This is episode number five and also our first annual Halloween special. You know, ever since I dreamt of starting a podcast, I also dreamt of doing an annual Halloween special because I am a big Halloween fan. So I'm really thrilled to be bringing this to you today. Today we have a special guest with us, Andrea Perrin. You may not know her by name, but she is an author of a three-part book series called House of Darkness, House of Light. This book series is actually the story that was the inspiration for the very popular um, movie The Conjuring and also started the Conjuring Universe series of movies. Now, the actual story is a little bit different from the film version, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. Actually, it's way more intense than the film version, uh, especially if you read the books and really get into all the details. Some of you might not like some of the things that are said or some of the places we go, but that's okay. Again, we're glad you're here, and we hope you just hang on and enjoy Uh, the listen. Um, I do want to encourage you, if you like what we're doing here at the Religionless Podcast, head over and give us a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and also leave us a review. It really helps to get the word out about what we're doing. And if you want to support what we're doing financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash religionless, and you can become a partner uh, from anywhere from $1 a month to $500 a month. We welcome all of it. It helps to keep us doing what we're doing and is a great encouragement to us. So, I don't want to waste any more time with intros. So without further ado, I take you into our first annual Halloween special with Andrea Perrin. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to the Religionless Podcast, everybody. Today, um, I am honored to have Andrea Perrin, an author, speaker, spiritual seeker. I suppose I could say spiritual teacher as well. I think that works. Um, On the show today, I have been actually secretly wanting to have her on ever since I first dreamed this podcast into being specifically for a Halloween episode, but any episode would be just fine. Um, But it just so happens to be a Halloween special today. So we are so honored to have her on the program today. Andrea, welcome. Oh, thank you so
1: much for inviting me, Jeff. Um, I feel that we are kindred spirits from the first moment Mm -hmm. that we connected. Uh, I had about maybe 20 or 25 uh, uh, messages that had come through to me uh, on my website. And I, I opened it and said, Oh, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't deal with this right now. And something hmm. made me click on yours and only yours. And as wow. soon as I read it, I was, I felt uplifted. I felt inspired. I felt like I have to call this man right away. Oh God, I hope he's in the country. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, not overseas. I have to reach out to him immediately. And as soon as I did, you responded. And uh, there's you. You must admit there is a certain energy that we exchange that is is a like frequency. Um, uh, and totally, totally, we totally agree. resonate with each other mm-hmm. immediately. And I took it upon myself to call you at home and bust up, you know, some homeschooling that was going on. I'm like, I have to talk to you now.
0: (laughs) My kids thanked you for that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I bet they did. I am. I know I'm their new BFF. I know that.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I actually just, I had it in my mind. Just if I don't even remember when I sent the email, actually, I first sent you a Facebook message and I'm still not sure it's been checked. And I just assumed, you know, It's one of those things. A lot of people don't check their Facebook messages, but that was the only channel I could find initially to reach out to you. And then I was like, oh, I'll go to her website. There might be an option there. And so I sent that a few weeks ago. And it was one of those things you throw out there, and you never know if you're Mm going to hear back or not. But yeah, I was washing dishes yesterday, and I saw the email pop up, and I was like, holy smokes, it's on. So (laughs) I was so excited when I saw it.
1: Well, I'm so glad I interrupted your
0: Sisyphean task. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. I am too, yeah, because... That uh, sometimes that stone gets uh, a little tiresome. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who, for those listening who might not know who you are, you are the author of the three volume book set, House of Darkness, House of Light, which is the story of your family's, um, or how should I say it? It is the the story of your family living for over a decade in a haunted farmhouse in Rhode Island. Correct. Yes. And, and it was adapted, um, or your story, it actually is not based on your books. It's based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren was made into the movie, the conjuring, the first conjuring movie. And we'll get into, um, at some point in the conversation, how maybe not everything in the movie was exactly how it happened. Yeah. Like Um, hardly anything, but yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Yes, absolutely. And, um, but it's a fascinating. Well, I, I have to be honest with you. I've only read the first one. Um, I try to. I'm an avid reader, and I try to read as much as is humanly possible. But uh, I've only been able to read the first volume. I am going to order the other two, asap. Um, but the first book just blew my mind. The real story of what happened. Um, your writing style, your gift as a storyteller, and just the, I wouldn't even say sprinklings, the generous doses of philosophical spiritual even theological insight that is all over the book it was just it was such an enjoyable read um, and yeah I'm just really excited to have a conversation with you actually you're the kind of person that I could talk to I think all night uh, I, I, I I detest small talk I'll do it when I have to but I love people that I could just get right into uh, crazy stuff with so I think we're gonna I'm just really looking forward to this conversation. You can hear it in my voice. My wife said before I came on, you look like a kid on Christmas morning. Would you calm down a little bit? So (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling um, I'm not uh, I'm not a psychic,
1: but I think it's fair to predict that this will be the first of uh, many more conversations, because no matter how deep we go, we will still be
0: scratching the surface. Yeah, I'm here for that. Let's do it. So I guess I'll tell you all, um, the listeners, kind of how I first encountered Andrea and Andrea's work and why I really wanted to have her on. Um, So many of you, you know my story. Many of you have read my books. You've been following me on social media for years. And you know that part of my story is that I was a pastor for 12 years. And at some point during my tenure as a pastor, my faith was greatly challenged to say the least. And it stopped working. Um, it didn't fade, it failed. Um, and I came to see that the faith that I was handed was an untested faith. Um, I, I I didn't know whether it was real or not because it was handed to me. It hadn't been, it was an, it was a 100% untested faith. And when it was tested, it crumbled like a house of cards. And, um, many of you know my story, um, and, and what that was all about. And, and so I went through this pretty dark season where I'm trying to be a pastor. I'm trying to help lead this faith community and do what pastors are supposed to do all the while, not really knowing if I even believed or not. I've I've told it numerous times of sneaking into Barnes and Nobles and buying Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, sandwiched between C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce and some other, you know, generic Christian title, hoping no one would notice it. And, you know, going home and reading it like I was reading a Hustler magazine or something as a teenager, trying, you know, hoping no one would find me out. And and my faith failed me. That's all I'm trying to say. And I came to a point where I just didn't have much left. You know, I I, I was really bordering on being just a full-blown materialist. And the funny thing is, there was one thing that kept me tethered to faith of some sort, even though it wasn't the faith that I grew up with was the experiences that I had in my home growing up for 13 years. This house was haunted. I don't know how else to talk about it. You could call it oppressed. You could call it whatever you want to call it. But the bottom line is this house, there was a lot of spiritual activity in this house and the things that happened in that house really can't be explained any other way. And no, I don't have photographic evidence. No, I don't have videos of, dishes flying around the room or anything like that. But I have my experience, which I promise you is as good as that because it's real and it's like burned into my soul. And I don't talk about this stuff very much because the Christian culture that I come from, as you, the listeners know, is very fundamentalist. And you don't talk about stuff like this because there's two choices in that world. It's either God or it's the devil. And God can express himself in, you know, a very limited set of uh, ways. He can, it's very limited how God can interact with you, but the devil can just do all kinds of stuff all the time. So most of the stuff that goes on in your life, we would call the devil and very little of it would be God. And so if you're having weird supernatural experiences, it's the devil. You just don't talk about this stuff, but I'm kind of tired of not talking about it because it needs to be talked about. And so this is actually something that kept me tethered to spirituality. It was kind of, I deconstructed a lot of things, But there was a couple things I could not deconstruct. I hit that non-deconstructable thing. And one of those was love because that can't be deconstructed. But the other was these very real experiences that I and my family had in that home. And when I first saw the movie, The Conjuring, even though I know it's very different from what actually happened, there was something about it that connected with me. And maybe it was just so that you and I could connect all these years later, Andrea. But something in me connected to that movie as it just reminded me of my growing up years there was something about the 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 atmosphere of those nights when things would just pop that felt very real and very personal to me mm-hmm. and um anyways so that's just that's something that actually kept me tethered to faith and allowed me to enter into a whole new and i think more beautiful expression of that faith and so when i read your actual story andrea when i read Your book and have heard you speak on it several times. um, I I I just I I just fell in love with with the way you presented it, and I I can you know I'm a preacher like I like I said I was a pastor for 12 years. I can I can preach you know I can spit some fire if you will. But like when you tell the story of your family's experience, you tell it like a preacher, like you get into it. I can tell it's real. You can tell when someone has had an actual genuine experience, and when someone is just making mouth sounds. And I've never heard you speak where you were just making mouth sounds. There's something real that's emblazoned on your soul um, when it comes to the story and what it opened you up to. And so I really would love for you to just take as much time as you want to just tell us that story. Tell us the real story. Take us back as far as you want to take us. Bring us as up to speed as you want to bring us. And we'll, of course, converse and go back and forth in between. But I would love it if you would just take us back And tell us the story.
1: Well, it's um, according to my mother, who went through hell in that house, Hmm. uh, it was the most interesting and enlightening decade of her life. Um, She said that, you know, now at 81 years old and rather frail, um, when we do talk about death, she talks about the farmhouse and has told me on uh, a number of occasions that uh, what she learned in that old colonial farmhouse uh, taught her everything that she needed to know about life and death and the afterlife. And because of it, she has no fear of death because she knows that death is not the end, it's the beginning of another chapter. And even though all these decades later, Uh, I saw my first full-body apparition the day we moved in. I was 12 years old. Um, He looked like flesh and blood to me. I said good morning to him as I walked past him. And he looked through me like I was a ghost. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know why he was there. I thought it was unusual that he was dressed in such a unique way. And I remember (laughs) distinctly asking my mother when I went into the kitchen with a box in my arms. Mom, who's the man with Mr. Kenyon? Does everybody out here dress like that? (laughs) Um, And then she, of course, assured me that no one was with Mr. Kenyon, who was the homeowner who sold us the farm. Uh, He was packing up to leave as we were moving in. Um, and, And then my sister Ah, Christine came in the kitchen with her box that my father had handed her from the back of the moving van. She also made mention that there was a gentleman with Mr. Kenyon. And my mom said, no, his son's on the way. He's not here yet. And then my sister Cindy came into the kitchen and I had already gone back outside at that point through the kitchen door to go back around to the van and get another box. And uh, Cindy made mention to my mother that there was a, an oddly dressed gentleman with Mr. Kenyon. And, you know, my mother, I'm sure at that point was exasperated, like, you know, what are you talking about? Nobody, you know. Yeah. And, but it, it didn't preclude the, the plausible explanation that a neighbor dropped by to say goodbye. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the house had a bajillion doors, could have come in another way. And um, mom was uh, very busy unpacking boxes and trying to set up the kitchen. And, you know, we were already behind schedule and it was starting to get dark because, you know, by 4.15 in the afternoon in Rhode Island, it's dark. So you got to hustle. And uh, moving day is moving day. It's all chaos and bedlam. And uh, Mm -hmm. so you just kind of let these things go. But Uh, then, um, Nancy walked into the kitchen and she leaned over to Cindy and she said, did you see a man standing near Mr. Kenyon? I did, but he just disappeared. And that was the beginning. That was the very beginning, uh, for us. And yet, you know, my mom had found the farm, uh, about six months prior to actually purchasing it with my father for our family. And we had made a number of trips to the farm. And when I began writing the books in 07, uh, and started interviewing members of my family to make sure that I got the stories you know, authentic and accurate and hadn't left any details out and let everybody tell their own stories. It really is a family memoir. Um, I, uh, be- I begin it in a chronological way, introducing the readers to my perfectly normal family. Um, And then after they see all the different events that had to occur precisely the way that they did, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, it's what catapulted us to the farm. And I will always believe that it was a, a cosmic convergence of events which conspired to bring our family to the old Arnold estate. Mm -hmm. Um, No one will ever be able to convince me that it wasn't our destiny. Uh, And I don't know why, and I can't explain any of it. And all these years later, uh, the one thing that I can say with certainty, the one thing that I know is that there is something beyond our mortal existence, Mm -hmm. but I cannot explain to you exactly where it is or how it is or why it is, one of the questions that I receive most frequently is, well, how did you know who was who? Well, we don't for sure. No, my mom did some historical research on the farm that she turned over to Mrs. Warren several years later after we'd moved in. And my mom never got that notebook back. So she didn't have all of that research to refer to specifically. But, uh, you know, a great deal of it was um, sealed in her memory. So uh, we went back and did an awful lot of uh, uh, digging up um, memories, all of us, uh, in the writing of the book. Uh, my, my poor family, what I put them through, Jeff, you can't even imagine It was, you know, I have like reams of notes. And one day I was sitting around the kitchen table and I know I wander around, you just have to go with me at stream of consciousness, just ride the wave, (laughs) baby, ride the wave. Um, We were all sitting around uh, the kitchen table at um, our home up in Georgia at the time. Um, And I was writing, my sisters were just, you know, their lips were flapping a mile a minute And I was writing and writing and writing down notes because I didn't have a recorder. And so I was just making notes about what they were telling me. And my mom reached over and she stopped me. And she just put her hand on my hand and she said, we spent all these decades trying to bury our dead. And yet, when it came time to exhume them, it's amazing how close to the surface they are. Wow. And it was, when you are touched by spirit, it's permanent, it is indelible, it never goes away, it sears your, your brain and numbs your mind and throws you into a surreality that you can revisit over and over again just by mere recollection of certain events. You can remember the temperature of the room, the clothes you were wearing. Uh, any odor or aroma that was around you, um you know the light, how the light fell across the room, uh everything, everything, every aspect, every element of it and and it was so important to me in the writing of the books to to capture that um, but it was uh i it was more of a challenge I mean it was less of a challenge than I thought that it was going to be. Because when it came time to do cross referencing and to have each sister read the stories that I had written based on the notes that I had taken, I you know I told them all, if you find anything wrong, if there's anything in here that needs to be changed, you've got to let me know because let me know now because this is you know book one's going to be published, book two is going to be published, you know, and so I would kind of put some pressure on them and say, look. You know, get on this, read this through. And if there's anything that I got wrong, tell me. Um, And out of 1,500 pages and three volumes, I had to change one um, season from fall to spring. That the event happened in a different season than I thought that it did. About You're you're dealing with
0: seven family members on top of all that, too? Yes. Yep.
1: And, uh, you know, so one of the things that I addressed, I figured if I was going to, you know, basically forfeit seven years of my life, it took seven years to the day from the day that I began writing the books, which was August 7th, 2007 to August 7th, 2014 was the day that the, the third and last volume was published. Uh, that was not planned. That happened, that was a spontaneous eruption of cosmic forces. I had turned in all of my work to the publisher uh, in May, April or May of that year in 2014, right after the movie had come out And I was hustling trying to get the third volume out because, you know, once the movie broke, my books were selling like hotcakes, something I'll always be thankful to The Conjuring for because otherwise they would probably have just languished in obscurity. And, you know, once you have a feature film made about your story, all bets are off. Anybody that's legitimately interested in your story will seek the backstory. And Mm -hmm. so I was really rushing to get the third and final volume done uh, thinking it would be the easiest one um, to write because I already had written the entire, uh, it, it was written to be one book. It was not publishable as one book. My publisher said the only book bigger than this is the Bible, and we couldn't publish that either. So um, I said, well, interesting that you should choose that book as you know your, uh, your analysis of its size
0: and its depth um i've got i have the first one sitting by a bible right now and yours is actually thicker so yeah <laughs> and that's just volume one
1: <laughs> yeah but in the bible the print is smaller so very you true two, two and and the pages
0: more. are thinner yes, yes
1: yes and the pages are <laughs> wafer thin yeah exactly uh so um yeah i um i devote seven members of my family seven years to write the books uh, and I remember I was on the phone with my friend George when I got the email pop through from my publisher that my book had gone to print, and uh, I said, "You know what, George? It's so weird." Because I'm I'm just one of these hoarders, you know. I keep every calendar from every year in my in my grandmother's suitcase that I inherited after she died, and and uh, I said, "There's something about this date. Let me go check." And I kept him on the phone, and I went into my bedroom and I pulled it down out of my closet. And I went back to 07, and on August 7th, 2007, um, it had only one thing written in the box for that day, uh, and so it begins. Well, wow. So, um, yeah, when we moved into the farmhouse, um, one of the things that I found most interesting that very first day, uh, well, two things pre- predominantly, um, four of us, the children, had seen this apparition. To me, he looked absolutely solid uh, and as alive as as we are. Um, but my sisters saw him translucently. And later on in the day, just before uh, Mr. Kenyon was packed up and ready to go, uh, my father approached him and asked him if he is you know, that he appeared to be very sad about leaving his beloved farmhouse and that the house was plenty big. And if he wanted to, he could just live out the rest of his life there and, and just stay with us. We all mm-hmm. loved him very much. He was such a kind and gentle soul. Um, and he hung his head and he said, oh, no, I have to go. My son has built a home for me next to his in the village. And you could um, just hear the, uh, the despair in his voice because he loved the place so much. But then he took my dad for a walk a little bit later Uh, before he did that. Four of the five of us, my, my baby sister April was still in the kitchen with my mother and she was only five years old. She couldn't help unload the, the truck. Um, but we had all come in and our, our, you know, our hair was frosty and our (laughs) eyes had, you know, just like sealed shut from the cold. It was so cold. And, um, it was like a swirling ice storm that day. But you know, when you're a a Yankee and it's moving day, you you move, you just go. (laughs) It's all, I know it's the same way in Michigan, you know, it's the same way. And, um, and so he, uh, decided to ask my father um, if he would, you know, take a little walk with him. But while we were standing in the dining room with my father and, and Mr. Kenyon, the apparition reappeared. And the four of us stood there and kind of glanced at each other like, I see that, do you see that? Yeah, do you see that? Yeah, without saying a word. But we knew not to say anything because it was obvious. That neither my father nor Mister Kenyon could see him at all, and that was the real supernatural wake-up call. That was the moment I think when we went from being a normal family to a paranormal family. Wow! Now, how and old were
0: you at the time? Andrea? I was
1: twelve, you 12. Um,
0: and you're the oldest of five daughters, correct? Yes. You're the old-
1: yes and feeling older by the minute i just turned 62 a couple of weeks ago and it's like you know how do i feel 24 from the neck up and you know ancient from the neck down but it's (laughs) it's okay it's all right i'm i'm aging as gracefully as as humanly possible i think uh and i don't have any um compunction to dye my hair or try to make myself look 20 years younger than i am Uh, Because I think that the only other option besides growing old is not being here anymore. So I celebrate every year. Mm -hmm. Um, I find this uh, in retrospect. I find uh, my existence and our existence, I, we, uh, humanity, as being plunged into what I refer to as soul school where the test always precedes the lesson uh, which makes it you know very hard in this extremely oppressive uh, often grief riddled uh, three-dimensional five sensory realm but what i have since learned since my childhood is that is an illusion that we actually live in a multi-dimensional universe and that's how i was introduced to the notion of multiple dimensions of uh, what a portal is long before I knew that word. Um, And you know, at some point during this podcast, I'm probably and unintentionally um, going to say something that might offend uh, some of your listeners because I've been through my own spiritual reckoning, my own awakening, uh, and and I I believe that all of us are on a personal journey of spiritual ascension, and it's not like climbing a ladder where, you know, I'm standing on a higher rung than you are or you know, or anything like that. We are all in this together. We are all here right now on planet Earth for a reason. Uh, We are all living through the midst of the paradigm shift. It is now. Now is the time. We're in it. Uh, The age of uh, COVID-19 and all the upheaval around the world uh, is happening precisely the way it's supposed to uh, because we have lessons to learn. And so, uh, you know, I will apologize in advance if It hurts anybody's feelings if I refer to God as it, uh, to prime creator, to source energy, to, you know, uh, divine mind or infinite intelligence, because that is how I perceive God. Uh, I don't all even though I was born and raised Catholic, uh, my mother converted from uh, being a Southern Baptist to Catholicism. Uh, to be able to marry my father back in the day when such things were uh, compelled uh, in order to um, sanction a marriage in the Roman Catholic Church. My father was raised a uh, devout Roman Catholic. He was an altar boy for his entire youth. He went to parochial school. They worshiped at um, the um, Notre Dame, um, right around the corner Uh, Notre Dame Church, right around the corner from uh, the Perrin household uh, in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Uh, My father and I were both born in the same little hospital there, um, you know, many years apart, and uh, it was a part of our lives being, um, you know, that's one thing that my mother stringently objected to. When she finally broke down a couple of years after uh, it had come out on DVD and she finally said, all right, all right, all right, I'll watch The Conjuring. Because, you know, we had told her, you know, mom, you're going to, you're not going to approve of this. You're not going to, you know, like that. That was awful. Oh my God, you're hovering above April with a pair of scissors like you're going to kill her. And she's like, oh, well, that's just ridiculous. But Mm -hmm. the thing that she took exception to was that our family was portrayed in what she considered to be a destructive way. Um, Not destructive to us because it's very easy for me to clarify for people what the truth is. But we were all raised Roman Catholic. We were all baptized. We all made our first communion. Um, I made my confirmation before um, our family left the church. And it's not that our family left the church, the church left us. Um, and it happened the second year that we had moved to the farm. And at that point we all knew there was activity in the house. And my baby sister, April, uh, was sitting in church on an Easter Sunday. It was our second Easter and she was, um, oh gosh, probably six or seven, right? It's right around her birthday. Easter was always right around her birthday. And, um, at the end of mass, the priest said and the father and the son and the Holy ghost. And my darling little blonde haired, blue eyed bundle of love turned and looked at my mother. And she said in her big girl outside voice, mommy, see God has ghosts just like we do. <laughs> and every single head in that church turned and you know, we were a big family and we pretty much filled the pew. And at the end of, of the mass, um, our priest, uh, uh, approached my father and he said, um, Mr. Perrin, uh, for, you know, I, I, I would appreciate it if you would take your family and worship elsewhere. Wow. Um, and it was, he was, you know, he was no less a fear-based carbon unit than any of the rest of us are. Uh, and he just didn't want his entire congregation to disperse because the folks that moved into the old haunted house up on Round Top Road were part of that congregation. So I understood it, but my father did not. Um, the, but let me finish my other story. Like, so I told you, you know, if I go off on a tangent, you have to reel me back in. I hope you brought your hook. Um, so uh, I love it. Mr. Kenyon took dad out for a walk before he left that first day that we were moving in. And put his hand on my father's forearm and stopped and said, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a little ominous. My father, it was cryptic, uh, but Mm -hmm. my father did not interpret it that way. The way that he interpreted it, since ghosts were not on the radar, not at all, nobody even thought about it. We were moving into one of the original colonial homes that were preserved and left. Uh, in America and my mother being a student of history and a real buff, uh, was so thrilled to have procured this 200 acre, uh, magnificent estate, absolutely magnificent for $70,000, 200 wow. acres, a huge farmhouse and that glorious barn. Um, it was, uh, phew. Uh, It's just, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. That's how I feel about it anyway. And um, so dad didn't know how, you know, it was like he didn't know how to decipher what Mr. Kenyon had said to him and the way he interpreted it was, all right, I have just moved five little girls into a really big, really dark house with very narrow stairways and one bathroom on the first floor. So best to leave some lights on so my girls don't tumble down the stairs in the middle of the night. That's how he thought of it. And it wasn't until months later when we started meeting other people that lived in the neighborhood. I mean, you couldn't even see our closest neighbors. Um, but, you know, we started to get know, to know people that lived in the area, some of whom had lived in the area for generations. And we started hearing that there was never a time, no matter what time of night, that you drove past the old Arnold estate that every single light in that house was on and completely lit up an otherwise uh, pitch black landscape. Wow. Um, and so ultimately, we determined that Mr. Kenyon used that as uh, an efficacious way to hold activity in the house at bay. Um, He seemed certainly, through questioning from my mother uh, over the next few months, um, seemed certainly to know that there was activity in the house but could not bring himself to discuss it. He would ask uh, her You know kind of vague nondescript questions you know he'd stop by to visit with his pockets full of candy and say um well carolyn is everything all right up here everything's going okay any problems anything i might be able to help you with you know stuff like that and at one point um he had come to visit we were all out sledding because we had already figured out that it's not safe to play hide and seek in a haunted house um (laughs) And it's uh, safer to uh, run your sleds into a solid granite wall at the bottom of a hill than it was to play hide and seek <laughs> in that house. Um, but uh, at one point she said, you know, Earl, I, I hear some strange sounds in this house, some strange sounds. And um, she mentioned specifically uh, sounds that were occurring occurring in the parlor. And he just patted her on the hand and he said, swallows in the chimney, my dear, swallows in the chimney. Hmm. Um, and and perhaps that is how he justified it. Perhaps that's how he and his wife of some 60 years, uh, who had passed away about a decade before we arrived, um, that's how they dealt with it. Um, but when you bring five little girls who are really tomboys in disguise into a portal, cleverly disguised as a farmhouse, then, you know, things are going to happen. Um, and we brought so much energy into that house. Uh, none of us recall, as I mentioned before, having seen or heard anything strange or untoward during the visits that we had made to the farmhouse prior to owning it. From the moment we owned it, all bets were off. It's like they were waiting in the wings until all the papers were signed, and they could make their presence known to us um, in unmistakable ways. Um, and that was that was the paradigm shift for all of us. All of us. We suddenly went from three dimensional beings to beings who could see and interact in the fourth dimension in the Mm -hmm. realm of spirit. Uh, half of us were fascinated, you know, somewhat scared at times, but fascinated and half of us detested the experience and never, ever, ever wanted to look back when we left that farm and, you know, the other half of us mourned the loss. So, Each one of us, um, and the deeper that you get into the trilogy, Jeff, uh, volume two being much deeper and darker than the first volume, that's almost like, volume one's almost like in preparation for the rest Mm -hmm. of the story. Uh, But I'm sure that you've already noticed that it's written in a rather unique and some, some would say unintelligible way. Uh, But it is intelligible if you are capable of suspending the notion of linear time. Uh, The spirits guided me in the writing of the books. There were so many incidents that occurred at that farmhouse that if you open the front of each book, each volume, you will see an entire printout of the whole index of the entire trilogy. And in scanning it, you will find it to be almost a primer uh, in terms of how to read the book. And so, or how to read all the books. From the moment that we arrive on that property till the moment that we leave it in volume three, the stories, um, the chapters, each chapter deals with a whole series of stories and subchapters that are all related to the title of the main chapter, for instance. Uh, chapter 7 in Volume 2 is called Warren Peace, W-A-R-R-E-N. So, you know, probably too clever by half, but a play on words nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. And um, and that covers the entire 18 months that um, the Warrens were involved in our lives, starting in October of 1973 and going um, until... October of 1974 so you know more like a little bit more than a year they did come back uh, ultimately uh, made one more pit stop at the house they came about six times totally um, to investigate and my mother never sought them out she didn't know who they were when they showed up at our house Uh, but she let them in because it was freezing cold and they seemed harmless enough and she thought they were a couple that had gotten lost out in the woods of Northern Rhode Island. Um, And it was when they identified themselves that my mother realized that they had sought us out. Um, Mrs. Warren is the one who walked into the house um, knowing nothing about the history of the house. And she closed her eyes and covered her forehead with her hand and touched the black stove in the kitchen. And she said, I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, there's no way that she could have known. That's a very unusual name. And there's no way she could have known or done any history on the house um, in the interim from when she found out uh, from Keith Johnson, who showed up inexplicably with his uh, paranormal investigative team. In August of 1973, uh, he's the one, he and his brother are the ones that told the Warrens at a subsequent seminar that they attended at the University of Rhode Island that fall. And the mm-hmm. Warrens waited to come to the house until the night before Halloween, because at the time, Mrs. Warren said, um, according to her uh, her beliefs, that um, that was when... The veil would be thinnest, closest to Halloween, and it would up the chances of them seeing something manifest in the house. At which point, my mother laughed and said, Well, then every day is Halloween and there is no veil here. And, you know, I don't, I think that was the first time she had ever even heard the word veil used to, um, you know, mark some line of demarcation between this dimension and the next, uh, this realm and the next, the life and the afterlife. Um, you know, that was, I mean, there was no real use of the vernacular in our terminology in the way that we spoke about the spirits in the house, because, you know, that was, it was not something that, we knew about i mean you know our idea of ghosts was you know ripping up a a rather tattered sheet and cutting some holes in it for eyes for halloween trick-or-treating um it was it was just not on the radar at all when we moved in but shortly thereafter it was and we realized that we were living in a distinctly different environment from the one that we'd come from Uh, And nothing was ever the same and nothing will ever, ever be the same. We lived there for 10 years, uh, almost 10 years. Well, really, from the time that we found the place in June of 1970 and then left in June of 1980, you know, from the first moment that we all went to the farm, it felt like home to all of us. It felt strange going back to our little Cape Cod house in Cumberland, Rhode Island, like everything had shrunk everything felt different. Everything felt odd. And, and, um, like we just didn't belong there anymore. And it took uh, about five months to scrape up the money and, you know, convince my father first off, and then scrape up the money to get the farm. Dad wasn't too thrilled when he came home from a business trip and mom had told him she emptied the family bank account to put earnest money down on it, which was hands down, no competition. The most impetuous thing she had ever done, um, and you know, his first question was, "Oh my God, Carolyn, how do we get the money back?" You know, I mean, you left enough money in the account for milk and bread, and you know, she's like, well, you "Go look at the farm first. And if you don't love it, then I'll I'll contact the realtor and have her tear up the check. No, can do." Um, so we all went up to the farm and and because my mother had gone first by herself, not mentioning where she was going to us and uh, didn't want to get us excited about something that, you know, most likely wasn't going to happen, but she felt so drawn to it. And, um, you know, so that's a big part of volume one, all the things that happened and the way they happened and that they had to happen precisely the way they occurred in order for us to end up at the farm Um, including um, the naming of a very special dog in my life Uh, three years prior to finding the farm when my dad came home with a little basenji puppy and my mom swept her up into her arms and she said this is a very special dog she deserves an equally special name she tilted her head back to the stars. She closed her eyes. And when she looked down upon the smiling faces of her five little girls, she said Bathsheba. And all of us were like, which come up with that name, mom. You know, I mean, we immediately abbreviated it to Sheba, but she was Bathsheba and she Hmm. died a horrific death in my care, uh, in my charge. Um, And uh, it changed me, it changed me. It was, I, I just, I wanted to die with her. I had felt real grief for the first time in my life, real profound grief. And at the tender age of 10 years old, I discovered that the only measure, the only true measure of love is the corresponding grief that comes with a loss. Okay. So, I um, I went through a period of time. We had some really bad things happen. Uh, some of the boys in town, you know, they went from being our playmates to criminals virtually overnight. Um, I beat one of them half to death for killing my cat. Uh, My father had to kind of, you know, bail me out of that because there was a court thing involved. And, you know, I was just a little kid, so he went and spoke for me. Um, But, you know, I mean, it was really bad. Uh, We, you know, went away for a couple of days and my grandmother was watching the house and taking care of the animals. And uh, in her absence one day, uh, the hoodlums in town uh, got together and broke into our house and virtually destroyed it and kidnapped two of our cats, one escaped, and one died a, a horrific death uh, in a pothole in front of our property, in front on the road in front of our <clears> house. <throat> and when I found out who it was, um, I tried to return the favor. Um, I meant to kill him. I did. And that was when I discovered um, that um, evil resides in all of us. Because I felt absolute vindication and validation in pummeling him, and he was way bigger than me, but my anger, and my hatred, and my rage made me a superwoman at uh, at a very young age, and and uh, it was the only thing that saved him. Was one of our neighbors uh, picked me up and lifted me off of his body. Um, <clears throat> and told me to go home to my mother. Uh, so it created a great deal of consternation in, in the neighborhood because they were literally our next-door neighbors. And I had stalked him for three days in order to catch him alone uh, so that I could finish him off. And my mother said, nope, nope, this is not, you know, I don't know what happened to my sweet, gentle angel child um but i can't live in a place where something like this can happen i want to get out of here uh i don't know this place anymore i want to raise my girls in the country i want a place in the country roger i want a place in the country um and so it was bathsheba's death and it was the death of scrunch and um who was you know i've Honestly, I love people, but I love animals ever so much more. Um, I do. Uh I can just relate to them in an entirely different way. It, it truly is uh, a miraculous um love that I can't even explain the depths of, but I um I got I got a thing for the critters. I can talk to the animals. I thought for the longest time that everyone could. Um, But found out that it was uh, later that it was kind of a special gift that I had, but it was the loss of those two animals that in a very big way prompted our move to the farmhouse. Um, Now, there were uh, elements of The Conjuring that were absolutely true, Jeff. Uh, The great overarching themes of that film were true. Uh, I think that most people who see The Conjuring leave it with uh, several impressions. One being that good conquers evil. Uh, the next being that love conquers fear. And the third and true um, element of our story is that uh, the Perrin family endured an extreme haunting that we all survived. So, and and most of the rest of it was conjured in the minds of two screenwriters who not only cherry picked my books and tried to include some of the truth, but were turned away by uh, the big bosses at Warner Brothers who said, this is too intense, take this out. There's no point in making a movie that nobody will stay to the end to watch. So it's, I think, the first time in movie-making history where a story got, instead of sensationalized, it got toned down. Um, wow. the, uh, it's, it's just so much different. The, the trilogy is so different than The Conjuring that um, they really, you know, they bear no actual resemblance to each other. But there were things, you know, about uh, the profound change that was taking place in my mother, Uh, You know, a number of different uh, things. My sister Nancy never went flying through the air, you know, by her hair. Uh, uh, There were times that the girls had their feet grabbed. So that was real. We did play hide and seek, but not with my mother. You know, they tried to incorporate certain little elements of our story into the conjuring but it was based predominantly as you had mentioned on the case files of ed and lorraine warren and they even holly that up uh you know mrs warren when i met her some 40 years after the last time i'd seen her when we went out uh to see a private screening of the film out in hollywood uh, before we um before it was actually released she told me then she said um You know, what they did, um, they, what they did, it's, it's, you know, it's, this is not what I had in my, in my notes and my, you know, and I said, I know, I know. And, you know, it's barely recognizable. I just said, it's all in the script, Mrs. Warren, it's all in the script, you know, and just put my arm around her and tried to comfort her because, you know, she was trying to make amends and apologies because, It was like she made reference to Bathsheba being in the house. And because the backstory of Bathsheba is so fascinating, even though it's limited, uh, it's still very fascinating. And so they ran with that and they vilified Bathsheba Sherman um, when she was not the one. She never even lived at the Arnold estate. She was married to Judson Sherman and lived at the Judson at the um, at the Sherman farm over about a mile or so away from the farmhouse. Uh, But you know, there were only a few farms in the area at that time. She was born in 1812, she died in 1885. But I feel relatively certain that the spirit that was haunting and taunting my mother was long dead before Bathsheba was born. And she was actually born to the Thayer and Taft Union uh, and uh, grew up in Providence. Uh, and as a a child from a family of means. Um, And I don't know how she ended up with Judson Sherman, um, but she um, had four children with him and only one of them survived her. Uh, The first, I believe the first three died uh, before the age of four. Um, And they're all buried next to her at the Riverside Cemetery in, um, Harrisville, it was, uh, I think she got a really raw deal, you know, based on all the rumors and the innuendos that were told about her, uh, supposedly, um, a child and infant in her care died. I don't know if it was, uh, one of the Arnold children or one of her own. Um, but that upon examining the, the baby's body, there was a needle found impaled at the base of its skull. And the cause of death was listed as convulsions, and there was an inquest in Chapachet, Rhode Island, because the town of Burrowville had not even been incorporated yet. And she was a very young woman uh, at the time, and and you know she swore that she did nothing to harm the baby. I mean, there was one one news article about it that my mother found somewhere up in the Worcester Valley of Massachusetts. You know, just it's 200 years ago, they didn't keep records the way they do now. But uh, that information went um, to in the notebook that Mrs. Warren asked to borrow and then never returned. She was going to make Xerox copies of it, but she never, in spite of the fact that my mother asked for it back several times, um, it never came back to her. It had all the sketches of the different entities and apparitions, the different manifestations that occurred in the house, the death and the birth records of people that had lived and died at the farm, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, And including the story of Bathsheba that my mother didn't even really know about until uh, the man who claimed to be the town historian came a calling to visit. And he was in his 90s when we met him uh, in the early 1970s. And He said that Bathsheba died when he was 10 years old. And whenever he spoke of her, he would lower his eyes and didn't have anything very nice to say about her, um, but never accused her. He said she was accused of, of sacrificing an infant to the devil for eternal youth and beauty. But there's absolutely no other evidence anywhere that Bathsheba Sherman was a practicing witch and that she killed anybody deliberately. Um, And if anybody had thought that she had really thought she had, she wouldn't have been buried in hallowed ground. So I think that, uh, you know, even a hundred years earlier, throwing that word around somebody could get them jailed or worse. So, uh, you know, really, as I write about in the books, you know, words are weapons words declare wars and war was declared, um, you know, and it was, a, it was like a cold war. It was kind of like a cold shoulder war that was declared on Bathsheba during her time. And she died in 1885. Um, but the spirit that was approaching my mother, my sister Cindy and my sister Christine, and the one that I saw hovering over my mother um, she clearly, distinctly had a broken neck, and Bathsheba mm-hmm. did not die of a broken neck. She died of paralysis that ensued after a stroke, and her vital mm-hmm. organs shut down. But it was uh, Mr. McEachern had told my mother that in the late 1700s, that Mrs. John Arnold hung herself in the barn, um, at the age of 93. Uh, after her husband died. And she had, um, it, it, to our knowledge, was the only one that ever had a broken neck. Well, you can see what they did in the movie in terms of amalgamating those characters. Uh, my, my little sister April had a, a, a little uh, ghost friend uh, who told her his name was Oliver Richardson. Uh, Before we ever knew that the original family that built the farmhouse was the Richardsons and that through marriage, it became the Arnold estate. So the history, as I said, is sporadic and and very odd. And, you know, I didn't write the books to be, you know, historically accurate because it would be impossible to recreate almost 300 years of history on that house. Um, I just wanted to leave people with the impression that, you know, hearsay can be a very dangerous thing. And, uh, you know, folklore uh, usually has a root, but I don't think that it's a good idea to ever accuse anybody of murder, unless you've got some evidence to back it up. Um, yeah. And I really have kind of turned out to be Bathsheba's great defender. I can't absolve her because I don't know for a fact that she did or did not do what she was, Accused of at the time in the late 1820s or early 1830s. I believe she was around 18 or 19 years old when that happened. Um, But, um, you know, I can certainly defend uh, her betrayal uh, and portrayal uh, in the film because she wasn't the one that was coming after my mother. And I believe that. And again, I don't have any proof of my assertion, um, but all evidence in terms of the appearance of the apparition would lead anyone to think that it was somebody who had a broken neck, that died from a broken neck. Um, And she was hideous. She was uh, absolutely grotesque, And yet I still, to this day, I, you know, I don't know. See, for me, Jeff, you know, and and I think that this will be a good segue for us. There's no possible way for me to tell you the whole story. I have to, you know, I'm not being, you know, uh, coy when Mm -hmm. I say to people, you have to read the books. You know, I mean, you just have to read the books if you want the whole story, because it would I would I would be on this podcast with you for 12 hours to just get through the first one. So um, what I want people to know is that this was a true spiritual journey of enlightenment for my family. Um, My sister Cindy wishes we had never moved there, that we had never lived there. She went through hell in that house. My mother, who did go through hell in that house, is glad that we lived there. My father has mourned the loss of it every single day since we left it. So Mm -hmm. have I. My sister, Nancy, was so angry about the sale of it that she approached the new owners and uh, offered to stay on and did stay on for quite some time as the caretaker of the property um, until things took a very ugly turn for her up at that house and she had to leave. Um, Christine never wanted to look back. April's heart broke to leave little Oliver behind even though she was 15 by the time we left, um, each one of us had a a different reaction. Um, Each one of us took different actions in terms of how we related to the presence in that home. Most of it was benign or benevolent, most of it. Uh, But the one spirit that was haunting and taunting my mother Uh, I do believe was one of, if not the original mistress of the house, then one of the very early uh, women whose home it was. And for some reason felt threatened by my mother, my mother's presence in the house. Loved my father, coveted us, the five kids, wanted us, uh, wanted my mother dead and gone. Didn't care how she got her out of the house. And when my mother began becoming oppressed and, and changing in um, some really bizarre ways, uh, you know, dressing in vintage clothing and her voice seemed to change, she started uh, using language that was um, archaic in our time. You know, re, re, she was doing a lot of historical research. So I think that you know, because that transition occurred very gradually, it was easy to pass off as, Oh, you know, mom's been reading a lot of history books. Uh, but you know, she would call the, uh, the men in town, yeoman, you know, use archaic yeah. words, language for the same thing instead <clears throat> of modern language. Um, and, um, really started to change. Even her voice started to change. Uh, there were things that happened, uh, in that house that had uh, a permanent effect on my mother, absolutely permanent effect. Uh, So, but then that was true of all of us because I'm, as you well know, my dear, once you are touched by spirit, it's a door that's opened that never closes again. And so you can turn away from it and ignore it if you choose but eventually something will reach through and tap you on the shoulder and make its presence known again. And I think that the most important lesson that I learned living at the farm was spiritual in nature. And I will say something now that perhaps many of your listeners will be moved by, but there is evil in the universe there is evil in this world pure unadulterated evil i've seen it i lived through it Um, and it's why i choose to live in the light it's a deliberate choice that i make i turned away from the dark side of existence long ago and i try and strive always to be the light that i seek um but I will tell you that when all hell was breaking loose in that house, there were three words that stopped it dead. And that was God help me. Hmm. And every time it didn't work, you know, sometimes and then not work other times. You know, I can't identify for sure, for certain, a single spirit that, that dwelled with us as, you know, we lived among the dead for a decade, but I will tell you for me personally, I don't speak for any other member of my family when I say this, but for me personally, it's not, it matters not who they were in life that they still are in afterlife is the miracle. I just looked at the clock, I realized I talked for a solid hour
0: hour. oh my God, I'm so sorry oh, i'm so no, I've sitting been on stage and doing this in front of an audience you know i' I'm sitting transfixed, so don't you worry at all about that i'm I'm thoroughly <laughs> thoroughly enjoying this um <laughs> okay, so this house I love the way you described it as a did you describe it as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse so mr um I'm sorry. The, the the man who lived there before you all, Mr. Kenyon, uh, Mr. Kenyon. He had had experiences. Apparently, um, you could Nothing never that really... he divulged. Okay, so nothing that he ever he explicitly to laid it. out. Yeah, understood. But still, you could tell. You can tell someone who's had an experience a little bit. So there's at least. Well, what about people after you? And and I know that now the, 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 it's become there's some new owners and they're having investigators come in now more often. And there's been some things documented. Um, But what about like immediately after you, some of the owners, if you care to, or can speak to even that, I mean, was this something that continued even after you were gone?
1: Uh, Well, according to a number of people in town, um, that house was known to be haunted. Uh, But you know, nobody told us that right away. I mean, we didn't know we had to find out the hard way. Um, uh, the woman that owned it previous to the new owners bought it specifically because it had a reputation as being a haunted house. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then after the movie came out, turned around and denied it all. And, you know, we had been friends for 28 years. I was able to come and go from the farmhouse whenever I wanted to. And, you know, and and very much enjoyed having the freedom to do so. And I, you know, had uh, some trust in her loved, I loved her husband. Uh, one of the kindest, most gentle souls I had ever met in my life. He was just a a beautiful, beautiful person. Um, and I was actually closer to him than I was to her. Um, but she knew all about the writing of the books. And, you know, every time I'd publish another one, I'd bring her a hardbound copy and sign it for her. And, you know, he had read them all and was absolutely <laughs> mesmerized by them. And, She was giving them away to friends and, you know, buying more copies and giving them as gifts. And, you know, so she was like completely on board with what I was doing in terms of telling the story. And then when the movie came around, uh, came out, she, you know, went on national television called my mother, a liar. So them's fighting words. I'm sorry. You know, I Hmm. could take care of myself, but you know, when you call my mother a liar, that's it, that's the end. Trust is gone. Friendship over. Um, you know, said that I never told her there was going to be a movie made when she's the one that put me in touch with the producer that reached out to her first, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I could talk for a solid hour about the glaring discrepancies that occurred with her and between myself. Um, but, you know, I don't hate her. I don't. I mean, you know, I, by all rights, I should. Uh, who knows what kind of damage she's done to me. Um, just running her mouth and making her little videos about, uh, you know, everything I said to Andrea before. Well, no, that's not true. This is true. Everybody go away. No ghosts here. You know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. But I really do think that the house affected her in a, in a profound way. And, um, and then she turned around and she sold it to paranormal investigators. And now she's angry at them for opening it up. For paranormal investigations and you know i think the obvious question is well what did you think was gonna happen <laughs> right. you know i mean really uh you know and still hates my guts, and blah 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 and you know i'm sorry about that i i really am because uh she just did a very abrupt 180 a total about face and to some extent i certainly understand because Uh, When the movie opened, um, you know, the heathens of the world started making their way to the farmhouse. She accused me of printing the address of the farmhouse. I never did disclose that to anybody uh, in public, you know, online. Somebody in California actually is the one that did. Uh, And people started intruding on the property. And I can understand how upset Mm -hmm. she was about that. And she called me and she said, I want security on my property. I want you to call Warner brothers. I want you to tell them I want security on my property. This is all your fault. And I was like, you know, what is my fault? You know, I mean, you signed an agreement with them to, you know, do at at the very least exterior shots of the, the house. You know, you, you stood to make a boatload of money from them, you know, and And they reneged on that deal because when James Wan read my books, he said, Oh, hell no. Nope, not going to the farm, not going into Rhode Island. I'll find another place. And so I think, you know, part of her anger is that she ended up suing them to get what she thought was her fair share of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I think my family is the only ones associated with the conjuring that didn't sue them. Uh, everybody else pretty much did. Um, uh, but, uh, that said when she sold the house, uh, kind of on the down low to the current owners, um, they began to what she described as exploit it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I never, I would ever want to be uh, a part of exploitation of that beautiful place that I consider home in my heart. Uh, But I have done several documentaries there. Uh, I did an episode of kindred spirits there, my father and my sisters and I went up um, in uh, August of uh, 2019 and did an episode with Amy Bruni and Adam Berry uh, I did an episode of ghost adventures there. I thought I was just going for an interview and that was it. And I ended mm-hmm. up being a bigger part of their two hour Halloween special last year.
0: I, I did see that
1: one. Actually. Yeah. Uh, kind of a bigger part than I really anticipated. Um, um, and, you know, I, I have some, not because of what I said or what happened around me, but because of some <clears> of the <throat> other things I saw Um in that special i i have some regrets you know Mm. because i told them i said you know woe be unto anyone that provokes in this house and everybody behaved flawlessly in my presence but when i left all bets were off and you know everybody that was in that house for those days got deathly ill afterwards Mm. and i told i had wondered when i watched them Mm. forewarned is forearmed
0: so yeah. when uh, I watched that, yeah. I I know I, I've heard you speak enough to know that the farmhouse is is something of a sacred place to you. And so when I watched that particular special again, not anything that went on in your presence, but some of the things that happened after you left, I wondered how that would have sat with you. Um, yeah, I found them highly objectionable. Yes, you know, the ritualistic things that happened in the basement and all of that. I was just yep no nope. some of that sat. Yeah. Pretty badly with me. And I, I assume they did with you as well. I mean, not, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. I've just decided that, you know, I've, I've done enough. Um, and you know, I've really, it's not that I've given up the ghosts by Mm -hmm. a long shot. You know, they're a part of my, the spirit is a part of my, my life and my own personal evolution. But, you know, I've never felt like, I was from here. I always felt like I was accidentally supplanted on planet Earth. Uh, I've always felt like a misfit. I've never fit in. Uh, I kind of fake it till I make it and have wandered this planet for decades going, you know, what is this and why am I here? And who made a major clerical error? (laughs) but now i I realize that that, uh, now i know why i'm here now uh now i know why i'm here because i have found that writing these books and and it's no easy read i'm sure you can attest to the fact that it is interactive Mm -hmm. literature that it rips your heart out and hands it back to you healed and you don't even understand how that happened Mm -hmm. um but it is um you know If you're able to just from the moment we step on the farm until the moment that we leave it in the third volume, just allow yourself to feel that same sense of timelessness that we did living there. That's how I was guided to write the book. And it is a very unique way. I mean, I don't know any other books that require a how to read guide you know, to go with them. But what I ask people to do is suspend your disbelief and suspend your notion of linear time and just read the whole books, knowing that everything that happened at the farm happened during those 10 years. And then it becomes chronological again when we leave the farm. Um, And yet when you get to the end of volume three, you see almost like a Venn diagram of how everything transpired and exactly when it did. It's just really broken up more into the types of hauntings. And so, for instance, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, one chapter could be about Nancy or Christine or Cindy uh, in, in a subchapter. And, you know, let's say Nancy was 12. And then the next story, Nancy, 16. And the reader's like, well, well what? how did I lose four years? Well, you didn't just pause for a moment and reflect on what the point of correlation and integration is between these two stories and how they impacted each other and how the first one prepared her for what happened to her four years later, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, so it's in that way, it's interactive. And, you know, some people find it very confounding. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just one of those authors where everybody you know loves me to death or hates my guts, and there's very little in between. Um, you know, you know, I well, when I first when I published the first book, uh, there were, before Amazon changed its rules, um, and people would read about the uh, the conflict that we had with the church. I was getting death threats, uh, mm-hmm. some of them horrific uh you know how i was going to be hunted down and chopped into little pieces and hand delivered to the devil um people were writing horrific commentary about the books without having read them um and amazon actually finally changed that you know it used to be if you had an amazon account you could comment on virtually any book whether or not you had read it or purchased it through them and They've since changed that policy, thankfully, um, you know, and it, it broke my heart because, you know, I felt like I, I wrote this book for people, you know, to, to liberate them from their own fear to to just share our intimate family memoir with them. And, and, you know, I couldn't have written it, Jeff, if I was going to be crushed by every critic out there. God knows there's no shortage um, But, uh, you know, to my surprise, um, all three of the volumes hover anywhere between four and five stars, uh, even though there are some horrible reviews in there. I won't even read them because, you know, I'm very sensitive and I don't want my feelings hurt. And, you know, and, and what I've come to determine is that most people who say it's all a big fat lie and, you know, uh, you I, all I can say is if you think that I devoted seven years of my life in the prime of my life to concocting one big fat elaborate lie and then making my family memorize it and swear to it, um, then you're delusional, you know. Yeah. But you were really
0: I, playing the long con on that one.
1: Right? Yeah, <laughs> the long con. Yeah, gave it all up so I could <laughs> just lie through my teeth through a keyboard. Yeah. Um. No, it took a great amount of courage and a personal leap of faith to leave a job that I love to leave the theater company that I had worked with as a cast member for 20 years and to pack up all my belongings and my dog and my cat and move to Georgia so that I could be with my family uh, and be surrounded by my family because I was the lone holdout that lived still lived in Rhode Island and everybody else was down south and I knew that I needed to come down and be surrounded by them and be supported by them in the writing of this story. It was like a bell went off in my head in August of 2007. It was like, it's time. It's time. It's time. The world is ready for it. It's time. Tell the story. Um, yeah. And I didn't even tell my family right away that I had started writing the book. I took a, a my, my summer vacation and I lived in a little cottage on Waterman Lake in Harmony, Rhode Island. And I took a manual typewriter out onto the back deck and started making notes. And um, I used index cards to write down different recollections. And I don't know what prompted it, that it was time, but I spent that entire week filling up a recipe box with, you know, index cards and, and trying to create some kind of a chronology of events Uh, before I ever told anybody in my family that I was doing it. And then a few weeks later, I got a phone call from Norma up at the farm saying, there's a producer that called me that wants to talk to you. Can I give him your number? And I said, "Uh, producer for what? And she said, well, uh, I guess he wants to make a movie about the farm. And I was like, really? Are you kidding me? You know, so again, cosmic forces. And I told her that, he could call me and he turned out to be one of the executive producers of The Conjuring. And so it all started in 07, even though the movie wasn't released until 2013 and it took seven years, took seven years to make the movie, you know, interesting Mm -hmm. how that number seven keeps coming around and around and around. Um, But uh, yeah. um, uh, All too weird for words, Uh, but I will tell you that my faith, And the depth of my faith is profound from having lived at that farmhouse. And it is not that, you know, I'm not religious in the conventional. I'm not religious at all, uh, at all. Um, You know, one of my favorite books is uh, Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great. Uh, you know, I'm going to add it on
0: my uh, shelf right now.
1: <laughs> it's a yeah. wonderful book. Oh my God. It he is a brilliant man. Brilliant man. Yes, he
0: was. Uh, we could use him right about now.
1: Yes, we could use his voice right about now. Yes, we could. Um, but I do know that there is something greater in the universe that, that <laughs> there is a creative energy in the universe. And in fact, um, based on my own interaction and knowledge, Uh, Of the galactic family, they believe that too. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Pleiadians refer to God as the prime creator, the Arcturians refer to uh, it as um, uh, source energy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that humanity kind of shrunk the concept of a creator down to suit our narrow needs. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of compartmentalize and fit into our little brains. Yeah. Uh, but that it is much greater, much larger, much more beautiful and um, benevolent than anything that either of us can imagine. I refer to it as higher love. Um, mm-hmm. It is not love of this earth. It is is beyond this realm. It is beautiful beyond our imagination, our our ability to grasp the concept. And so that's why on my fan page, uh, I leave the banner up at the the top that says, um, I did not come to teach you. I came to love you. Love will teach you.
0: Hmm. I keep feeling like as we're talking, that there's actually, not only is your story the factual account of what happened to you and your family, but there's also a great, great parable. Um, and, and it seems even, specifically speaking to the audience that you're speaking to right now, most of who you're talking to are people who have grown up in a form of very fundamentalist religion. Many of the people who listen regularly to this are people who grew up being told week after week after week that you're no good, that you're born in sin. You're born sick and commanded to make yourself well upon penalty of eternal conscious torment. And, and then at some point in their lives started to wake up and realize, mm, if this is who God is, then being an atheist is the most moral choice I can make. Yes. Um, that is, that is who the majority of my list, that's, that's the kind of group they would fall into. And I, as a pastor, as someone who is extremely devout, I don't mean, uh, I I didn't take this stuff lightly at all. I still don't take it lightly, but I mean, I now know, I now know that taking something serious is to take it lightly. But at the time I thought that taking something serious was to put this intense and extreme over-importance on it and I mean I prayed 8 to 12 hours a day. I fasted every other day of my life. I lived just in extreme extreme devotion to the point where my wife and I would be driving down the road and she would just look over at me and I'm fighting a panic attack just because some thought popped into my head that I thought might possibly be objectionable to to God and that I may have just somehow forfeited my salvation. I mean I lived in perpetual fear, fear. and terror of God and And my haunted house, in a sense, was almost my faith, you know, that I was haunted by this ghastly image of this, mm, this devil that I called God. And it haunted my every moment. It haunted my dreams. It it, it controlled and guided my behavior. And at some point, at some point, I realized, well, let's just say at some point, um, I spoke up like your sister did in church. Yeah. (laughs) And the church heard and said we can't have that here you know um we can't have questions like that here we can't have people raising objections like that here yeah Um, automatic outcast as
1: long yes unless you adhere entirely to the dogma uh yes and the doctrine Um, You know, I mean, there are some religions that I I won't name it, but there's one Mm -hmm. religion on this planet. And I had to study every religion to get a degree in philosophy. Uh, They were so uh, inextricably intertwined. Um, (laughs) But there's one religion where it has, I think, worldwide 500,000 members. And they believe that they are the saved ones and that they are the only ones that shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And all the 7.2 billion others are (laughs) destined to burn in hell eternally.
0: Um,
1: Sorry, not buying. I'm not buying BS. I'm just not. No, Uh,
0: exactly. You know, we we had, we had a slight, we had a few more million members (laughs) where I come from, but even so it's still the same, very narrow um, us against them cultish if it weren't so large yes i mean if it were any smaller we'd call it a cult but because because of its ubiquity because of its vast numbers it's an institution
1: i have found in recent years that cults can be quite numerous um you know members can be quite numerous um uh and um as my mother always says honey fear the
0: living not the dead I'm talking about yeah. the overall yeah. tradition and specifically the, the the sort of oh the tributaries I started going down personally as a person who's very much bent in the direction of mysticism and devotion and really giving myself to a thing if I believe in it. Mm-hmm. I started finding all kinds of groups and all sorts of um expressions of Christianity that were all too eager to take advantage of my willingness to be devout and I found myself just absolutely burning out and I came to a point I just couldn't do it anymore I was I was I was it was so exhausting I couldn't do it anymore I was being haunted in a sense and I don't mean to make a metaphor too much out of this but it was really what was coming to me as we were as you were telling your story and Mm -hmm. as I'm thinking about the audience in particular and there did come that point where metaphorically speaking, we spoke up in church as your sister did and said, yeah. oh, God, uh, God's got his ghosts too. And the church immediately rushed to shush us and say, no. And I know people who lost jobs. I know people who were pastors who were pastors for years and years and years, and half their congregation walked out in them. I know people who are pastors of churches, 2,500 members plus whose mm-hmm. churches shrunk down to hundred, 200 members because the pastor started questioning the, um, the truthfulness of the doctrine of hell. And I know people who were just kicked out of denominations, kicked out of churches, fired from their jobs. And that's a lot of the people who are listening. Well, as you said, didn't abandon the church. The church abandoned them when they needed the church. Or they grew beyond it. Exactly. And I think that's really what it is. But even so, you know, I, I just love what you said, that we didn't abandon the church. The church actually abandoned us. It was actually in a way your devoutness and your faith and your belief that put you on the church's radar as something that needed to be jettisoned. You know, you were just yeah. you believed maybe a little too much. Well, and, um, you know,
1: when you get when you get really in deep with the, you'll see more as you read further uh, with the trilogy. Uh, I hold the Catholic Church to task, um, mm-hmm. and that's what has. You know, sent a few people over the deep end. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's scary when that happens mm-hmm. because there's an awful lot of volatility out there right now. And, uh, but, you know, it's to me, if God does exist, and I believe that some form of infinite intelligence, divine mind, source, energy, prime creator does, uh, sure. you know, yeah. going back to the philosophy of, of the, the great essayist, William Paley, who wrote the watch and the watchmaker, um, uh, mm-hmm. the, the basic premise being that it would be literally impossible for all of the pieces, the intricate pieces of, a uh, watch, um, a timepiece to literally fall from the sky and all fall directly into the exact position that they would need to be to create a device that, uh, with the ability to tell time. Um, in other words, it's all too complicated to have just fallen together by accident, that there has to be some force behind it that, um, you know, that, that created this world and the beings in it. Uh, You know, but there are people that we have right now in Congress that believe that, you know, everything in the world exists, that exists now was created 7000 years ago. Okay, right. They're in our government, Um, you know, and I and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, please. I don't want to offend anybody, but I find that so willfully ignorant. I find that so frightening um, that it is overwhelming to me. Uh, I turned away from organized religion a very, very long time ago. And again, I don't want to offend anybody, but I personally believe that organized religion, and it doesn't matter which one it is, is the scourge of the earth. That, um, you know, there is a quantum leap of difference between being spiritual and being religious. You know, religion to me right. is like organized crowd control, and spiritualism is being in touch with the universe and never the twain shall meet. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, that was other than going to an occasional wedding or funeral, that was, you know, that Sunday, uh, that Easter Sunday, all these, you know, f- f- five decades ago was the last time I've been in church with my family. That was it. And my wow. mother, when we went home, my father was so upset. He was so angry. He was so upset, and my mother was upset for him because she knew that he had um, he had just, you know, invested so much of his life, and you know, was really devout, uh, you know, on his way to the priesthood before he met her, uh, and then wow. that changed everything. I mean, like a real big deal. You know, <clears throat> he was Catholic as Catholic gets. Um, yeah. and she said to us, then girls, if you want to know God, go to the woods, go to mm-hmm. the woods. And so I guess in that respect, perhaps we are, uh, you know, pagan parents. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, if that was, uh, where I found the, the roots of my spirituality, all I know is living in that house is what projected me as a precocious, uh, rather academic uh, young lady at a very young age, uh, started getting me uh, reading uh, the metaphysical writers, um, the mystics. Uh, Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what environment I was living in. I wanted to know what this was. I wanted to know, What, uh, you know, I'd always been drawn to um, feeling uh, love toward something, toward something beyond myself. And through the course of that, I've come to a personal awareness that I do not impose on anyone else. But based on my own life experience, I have come to understand that without ever carrying a piece of paper around, I too am a minister and I minister to millions of people without even knowing it. You know, uh, I'll get a letter out of the blue from somebody that said, I watched one of your videos and it changed my life. Oh my God, thank you. Changed my life. I don't think or feel the same way about anything anymore. I read your books and it felt like I grew up with your family, that I know your family intimately well. Um, I will never think or feel the same way about anything again for the rest of my life. Thank you for being brave enough to do it. You know, and when you change one person's life, let alone countless others by simply speaking your truth, um, you know, and and living it into reality, you know, living into your own destiny. um, I think that there's really nothing more powerful in this realm than doing that. Um, But I, um, I find that uh, most organized religion, if you do not adhere to the very narrow construct of, you know, the the fundamentals—no pun intended—of any given religion, mm-hmm. and if you don't adhere strictly to that, then you are an outcast. And for me, uh, a creator that is uh, absolutely loving and embracing doesn't shun anyone. So, uh, you know, and for me, it's, it's not a he or a she, it's an it. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, my ideas about this are, you know, maybe a little different than some others. But, you know, human beings function um, with belief systems. And mm-hmm. even atheism is a belief system. It's a belief yeah. that there is no such thing as God. Um, and it is that faith and belief that we advance In our own spiritual reckoning and evolution, which brings us to a point, each one of us individually, where we get to know ourselves in a deeper way. And I personally believe, um, and this is just my own belief system, that each one of us is the living, breathing embodiment of God consciousness, that we are each in our own unique way. Um uh, an expression of God, uh, like a filament of God. Yeah. We are the way that God sees its own creation yeah. through our own eyes and, and not just human beings, but all living creatures. that yeah. this is a living, breathing planet that we are slowly but surely strangling. We're the only creature on this planet that fouls its own nest. You know, if you want to, if you want to love God, I think every single one of us should start with honoring thy mother Gaia. And, you know, how about let's not kill the planet that sustains us, particularly because we have no plan B and no planet B. You know, nor would we deserve one if we destroy something as beautiful as Earth and then say, oh, well, you know, we'll move to another neighborhood. No, see, it doesn't work that way. Um, You know, so we're... (laughs) Sorry. Oh, I got up on my soapbox there for a jump. Go
0: ahead. You can preach. You can preach.
1: (laughs) Oh, baby, I can preach. Uh, But I'll tell you what, um, you know, I don't try to convince or coerce anybody of anything. We're all on our own sacred journey. We're all taking our own path. Uh, And each one of us has to. um, Some of us can learn from the experiences of others, but most people, they just have to you know, make their own mistakes and find their own way. And, um, and, and that's part of the earthling thing. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's part of the test before the lesson. But as I had mentioned to you earlier, that that was the one thing that my mother resented about the conjuring was that, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I've researched uh, hauntings quote unquote for years And it is the rare exception when someone uh, has encounters with spirit and they're an atheist. Uh, And I do believe that in some way, shape or form, and I'd be very interested to hear your perspective on this, too. But I do do think that it's certainly plausible, if not highly probable, that... um, Certain uh, supernatural events happen to people who are spiritual and are devout, almost as though it's a test of their devotion.
0: Well, I wonder, and I guess that's even why I asked, you know, about what happened after you guys moved out of the house. Did these experiences continue with the next owners? Because sometimes I wonder with phenomenon such as that, or even what I experienced growing up, is it... You know, there's certainly things that are tied to locations. I don't think there can be any doubt about that. But, uh, you know, people can move in afterwards and are completely fine. Um, And then somebody else can move in after them and be like, holy crap, we're back to what it was 20 years ago. And so you have to wonder something about the, the makeup of an individual. You know, it's like, are we in a way like these fiber optic cables, some of whom light just shines through? more uninhibited. And, um, I don't know if that makes sense at all. You were going to say something and I,
1: yes, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, riding the wave of your stream of consciousness right now. Um, I don't know of anybody that lived in the house that didn't have, uh, experiences. Let me put it to you that way. Yeah. Including the one who claimed she never did after she claimed that she had them all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because it can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. It can't be both. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, I don't think to the extent that we did. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly not with the frequency that we yeah. did, um, not with the intensity, um, you know, not the same kind of disturbing activity that happened, um, because I think that it was the interaction Uh, particularly in the threat that my mother somehow posed to that one female entity Hmm. who may or may not be Mrs. Arnold. You know, we don't know. None of them ever walked up to us and said, Oh, hello, my name is none of them did. So, you know, we might not ever know in this realm, uh, you know, until we get where we're going and, you know, perhaps run into them there that we're ever going to know who was attached to whom. I always right. found it fascinating that I, I had a sense of belonging there uh, right from the inception. Um, I knew the first time that we as a family drove into Harrisville, the fa- the place was very familiar to me. And I asked my mother, you know, mom, have we ever come here before? And she said, no, honey, I don't think so. And yeah. I said, well, you know, once we pass this big house here on the right, there's going to be a there's going to be a bridge and there's going to be a waterfall and a really pretty pond. And I think there's a theater and then there's going to be a library. And then the post office is right across the street from it. And, you know, sure enough, that's the, a description of the village of Harrisville. Um, and and, you know, mom even asked my father, Roger, have we ever been here before? And he said no, uh, which is amazing because, you know, Rhode Island's the size of a postage stamp. So you would think, you know, we would have gotten around enough to have seen the four corners of it. Um, But uh, that was the extreme northwest corner of the state. And it was very rural uh, and still is in many respects. It's amazing, um, but it still has its countryside. And, uh, you know, I just, from the moment we pulled up in front of that farmhouse, I felt like I was home. And the, the day that we... Moved out, I told my mother about the apparition that I had seen when I was 17, um, which you haven't gotten to yet. I don't want to spoil the story for you. It's in volume two. Um, But I did see an apparition in the house that my whole family saw. Um, yes, honey, I know my little dog is hungry. She's like, please don't feed me. (laughs) But I have to finish up here, honey, and then I'll come (laughs) feed the little buttercup. You are not going to blow away in a strong wind. Go look at yourself in the (laughs) mirror. Jesus, my goodness. Um, And so, uh, you know, we were, uh, when I was 17, 18 years old, which is a whole story in itself, we'll revisit this later on in another conversation. But, you know, I turned around and I saw, an apparition that was the spitting image of me as an old woman. And I was Mm. 17 years old, uh, just about ready to turn 18. And everybody in the family saw her, but I'm the only one that saw her face. And it was on the day that we moved out. And I mean, she was a mirror image reflection of me as an (laughs) old woman dressed in leg of mutton sleeves, full length skirt, Uh, high collar with lace hair, gray hair, all up in a bun on the top of her head. And she smiled at me with such love in her heart. And it freaked me out. I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Reincarnation is real. This is real. You know, and I didn't tell anybody for, you know, the next few years. But the day that we moved out, um, I told my mother and, she said, I always knew we bought this house for you. I always knew it. Um, and as we were leaving, Nancy was so upset. Uh, she never wanted to leave the farm. She was so, I mean, to this day, she harbors resentment toward my parents for selling it. Um, but as, she, as we were leaving, there was uh, an apparition of that woman standing behind her. Uh, in the window of the dining room while Nancy was standing out in front of her on the porch and waving goodbye to us. And two days later, when we got down to Georgia and my sister Cindy had gone down with a family friend a couple of weeks earlier to bring the horses and get them out to pasture and, and get them, you know, in the barn and get all of that set up. Uh, Before the rest of us arrived, because my parents had to come out to Pittsburgh for my college graduation. So we were delayed by like two or three weeks. Uh, But when we pulled into the yard of our new farm and a new house in Salicoa Valley, Cherokee County, Georgia, the exact same apparition was standing behind my sister, Cindy. And my mother gasped and she said, this isn't over This will never be over and no truer words were ever spoken.
0: There's so much I want to talk about and so much I want to ask, but I don't want your dog to starve either. And I know I've kept you, uh, (laughs) I've kept you a little bit longer than we, we, we we planned on. Um, but this is, this has just been such an honor to talk to you and such an honor to hear your story.
1: Well, they Um, invented the phrase fast friends for us and, I will join you, rejoin you. I want to talk to your wife. I want to talk to your kids. I want to know your family. I want to mm-hmm. let you know the next time I'm coming to Michigan so that no matter what, as big a state it is, as it is, we have an opportunity to meet together mm-hmm. um, and share together. Because I'm supposed to be in your life and you're supposed to be in mine. And I don't know why or how I know that, but I know it. So mm-hmm. why don't we just consider this Um our initial introduction, uh, and to your listeners, I thank you for your patience with me. I know I've probably thrown, you know, uh, you know, I, I might've cobwebbed up some, uh, notions. I never, ever, ever intend to offend anyone. I just sharing my own, um, my own knowledge, my own, uh, system of, uh, belief. And we each have an individual one and, you know, I just think that it's important to think about these things because we are we're evolving at a rapid rate and these conversations are integral to our spiritual evolution. Um, yes. So I commend you for doing what you do and for the courage that it took for you to get where you are now, Jeff, um, and are ongoing. I, I feel... Uh, the exponential growth that occurred for myself just within uh, an hour and 50 minutes. Um, And I know that it, that happened for you as well. And we are just beginning our journey together. So I, uh, I pre-loved you when I read your letter uh, in my website. And now I can say that I love you dearly. And we will do this again and we'll pick up right where we left off, make a boatload of notes, ask a boatload of questions. The next time we'll kind of do it more rapid fire instead of me droning on and on. (laughs) Um, And so you can get more of your questions answered, but um, you know, let's, let's reconnect again in November and just carry on.
0: Absolutely. It would be an honor. It would be an honor. And do not apologize for anything because it was so fascinating. And I know that, All of the listeners are going to absolutely love it. So there's nothing to apologize for. It was all brilliant. And I'm glad it went the way it did. So um, Andrea, where is, obviously people can get your books on Amazon. Yes. Uh, Are you on social media? Is there anywhere, any other way that people can connect with you? Uh, Yes. And if
1: you're not on my friends list on Facebook, then I'm going to kick a cousin to the curb and make a space for you. And they (laughs) know they're placeholders. (laughs) I mean, they already know that. So, you know, they know I always put them back eventually. But yeah, and
0: uh, I'm sure I offended someone today, too. So I got
1: to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Usually I only have to I, you know, I occasionally uh, tick people off or I just <laughs> scare them away. So um, <laughs> I will I'll make sure that I get you on there so that you can share this podcast um, when you have yes. got it all you know ready. But um, yeah, I'm everywhere on social media. I mean, really, all anybody has to do is Google my name. Um, yeah. And I'm everywhere omnipresent, kind of like God. Um, and uh, <laughs> and um, you can find me, the best and easiest way to find me, you can follow me at Andrea Perrin on Facebook. Um, and it's obviously me. I mean, you know, there's a few of us across the, the world, but it's obviously me. I'm the one with all the ghostly stuff on mine. <laughs> um, and uh, also the best way to contact me quickly and easily is through... My smaller and much more manageable uh, fan page called The Buttercup Brigade. Uh, But you can also find me on House of Darkness, House of Light, which is my, uh, my book and author page. Um, I also wrote a book, uh, with my friend George called in a flicker. I have that page. I have a page called the world awakening. I'm rekindling my broadcast, uh, for that. I, you can find me on Andrea Perrin, YouTube house of darkness, house of light, YouTube, I have a bajillion videos out there. I'm just everywhere. Um, there's no excuse not to be in touch. So, uh but I do get hundreds and hundreds of messages a day and I frequently can't answer all of them individually though. I try my best. Um, but if I, if I would spend 24, seven, answering messages on social media, and I just can't do that and then continue to write books. Um, and then the next time I come on with you, I will have, uh, I I published a book privately last year called A Wonder to Behold. It's not available on Amazon yet. There's a placeholder on there for it. Um, But the whole book was about the pending paradigm shift. And here it comes, here it comes. Well, boom, here it is. So, um, you know, the book is so intense and it's so provocative that I didn't release it out into the world. I've been selling it privately and I had it printed in full color. Because the photographs that are in it uh, are stunning, um, striking images. And I just can't even imagine them be- being in black and white. But, you know, once it goes out on Amazon next month, uh, it will have an entire chapter added to it. Um, and it's called A Wonder to Behold Guideposts for Intergalactic Engagement
0: with Humanity. Well, that sounds... That's, hey, that's a subject for next podcast then. It
1: is. It Let's is among it. many. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, Andrea, it has been an honor. Thank you so much for your time telling your story. And uh, I I enjoyed the heck out of this. and uh, And I look forward to having you back again for another conversation, Andrea. Thank Excellent. you so much.
1: You're very Thank welcome. You so Give my love to your family and all of your listeners and have a wonderful night.
0: I will. Thank okay. you.
1: Take care, hon.